I spent 20 hours a day locked up in between two salty convicts. I've been down there for more years than I care to remember. One was a chess master, the other a master con man. Dangerous combination. Chess and cons. Welcome to episode nine of I Think I Like This Movie, America's Least Necessary Film Criticism Podcast. This week, we crack open the Guy Ritchie cinematic catalog with the 2005 UK release and 2007 US release, Revolver, featuring Jason Statham, Ray Liotta, Vincent Pastore, Andre 3000, and Mark Strong, a film brought to us by our guest and fellow journalist, Zeke Hartner. So, come for Ray Liotta's banana hammock and stay for the Cracker Jack box wisdom of Deepak Chopra. Zeke, let me ask you, can a $12 bill buy happiness? Oh, man, guys, I almost feel like I need to apologize for this. Um, <laughs> whew, there's a lot to unpack with this movie, and uh, it's... Um, I don't think I don't think this movie uh, gets any better with a rewatch, but it seems to be the kind of movie that believes it should be rewatched many times. <laughs> well, well, we'll get into all of that. Uh, as always, uh, Wilbeka is my co-host. Uh, I'm Noah Frank, and uh, since Zeke, you are our guest, uh, we will ask you the question first: Why did you think you liked this movie? Okay, so uh, apparently. Teenage Zeke is incredibly easy to impress. Um, I know I had just come off of seeing Fight Club not long before seeing this movie, and uh, Guy Ritchie had clearly also seen Fight Club when he set out to make this. Um, and, you know, I, I had seen Guy Ritchie's Blockstock and Snatch, and um, a friend told me about this movie and said, you know, there's this other Guy Ritchie movie. Um, that is an, an accurate statement. Yes, it is. It is an. Uh, it's the other Guy Ritchie movie. There is so this other like, Guy Ritchie movie. I was like, all right, yeah, sure, I'll watch this other Guy Ritchie movie. And uh, I was, I mean, I think I was fifteen or sixteen at the time, and I was just like thoroughly impressed with everything that this movie thought it had to say. Well, thanks for also making us feel incredibly old uh, by framing that within that, that time frame. Uh, so uh, do you do you remember do you have a like a distinct memory of of where you watched was this like a was this a I watched on on DVD in my room or I I, I mean I assume that you didn't contribute to the uh, $84,000 of US box office total revenue that this that this way to go America which which is roughly what Jeff Bezos has made since I started this sentence <laughs> <laughs> No, no, I did not catch this in, in theaters. Actually, it was it was the same friend. He, he had a copy of it on DVD and he had a great uh, home theater setup. And I can't I can't blame him for introducing me to this movie. Um, I did like it back then, obviously, or we would not all be here talking about it. Um, and he introduced me to some truly great classics. He had a great home theater set up at his house. Um, so I remember where I was, you know, when I was watching it over at his place, um, we popped it on and, you know, by the time the credits rolled, I felt like my mind had been blown and, you know, this was, this was one of the smartest movies I had ever seen. Um, it not, not true at all, but <laughs> it certainly felt true at the time. Will, do you have any? Did you have any experience with this before this watch? I didn't know this movie existed until Zeke brought it up. Yeah, me neither. I and and I also, I mean, so uh, I Snatch think I was, would have been better off if it stayed that way. <laughs> Snatch was what, like two thousand, two thousand one, some somewhere in that range. I I didn't see Lockstock until after Snatch, uh, but I saw them both early in college. And Snatch is is great. I mean, it, it's a great film. It's 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 exactly what it sets out to be it it's not too deep but it does have a nice little twist it's a good action you know lots of funny characters and weird accents and and you know sort of slices of of british underground crime culture uh that sort of became guy Ritchie's trademark through his first couple of films well, yeah we can all remember lines from snatch right get event for me ma but right this the germans right and and jason statham and guy Ritchie obviously are like the through lines to to that world but it this uh 
it, it felt like it lacked that sort of array of characters. It, I, I saw that like Vinnie Jones, they talked about having having him be a part of the film, and he didn't. <laughs> like there, there are a couple other people that like they were like, yeah, they approached him for this, and then that didn't happen. It was sort of vague of why it didn't happen. I assume they just read the script. Um, <laughs> but but like it was missing some of those comedic uh, sort of punch ups that that kept those movies from taking themselves too seriously, which is maybe something this film could have benefited from. Um, so I, I guess normally one of us does this unless we have a guest. So Zeke, uh, do you want to, <laughs> and this is your punishment for bringing this film. <laughs> do you want to try to explain either in log line form or at no longer than one paragraph form exactly what happened in this film. So three to five sentences tops. <laughs> give the, give the, uh, the bird's eye mile above view of what happened. Okay. Uh, how many flashbacks do I get? <laughs> I mean, it's, <laughs> it's up to you. You just got to cram it all in. <laughs> all right. So Jason Statham is a con man recently released from prison, gets out and immediately sets out uh, to pull off the perfect con, which he has learned in prison. Um, he is got some kind of nebulous relationship with Ray Liotta, who is responsible for him doing seven years in prison. He wants to get his revenge on him when he gets out. He meets uh, two other con men who... Uh, force him into um, giving away any money that he's made since he's made it out of prison uh, and also force upon him some kind of spiritual awakening as as they go along. Um, at that That is, I think, what the movie, the story of the movie sets out to tell, um, how clearly it manages to actually hit those beats is... Uh, it, yeah, no, not well, not well. <laughs> yeah, uh, so I'll, I'll help try to fill a couple gaps, and will uh, if you have any other little tidbits. So, so he was in seven. He was in prison for seven years. We we see him come out, but then there's another two year gap in which we learn that he has been making a ton of money using some sort of a system or whatever uh, um, that he has learned in prison. So he he has made a bunch of money. Um, he then immediately makes some more money at the expense of uh, casino magnet and crime boss Ray Liotta in nebulous, maybe Las Vegas. It's kind of unclear. Yeah, it's, um, it's maybe Vegas. Yeah. And then, um, uh, right, he's he is blackmailed in an inexplicable way because they don't actually have any leverage over him by these two people. Well, he's, uh, which, he's saved. Well, they say he's going to die in three days, and then for some reason, even though he's going to die in three days, they never say we or or else we'll we'll keep you alive. They never say that. They never say you're going to die unless you do exactly what we tell we say, and then you won't die. They just say you're going to die in three days, and he goes, "Okay, I guess I'll give you all of my money." Uh, it makes absolutely no sense. Like there's right. there's a missing clause there. Because if you uh, this was, it was such a it was such a bizarre framing. I mean, because they they tell him, you know, we can keep you alive. And in the conversation where they're telling him, you know, you have three days to live, uh, you know, he starts thinking these guys are trying to con me. And they say to him, you'll think you're being conned, but if you think about it, you're not. With right. no other explanation than that. If I, if I had, <laughs> if I had a gazillion dollars and three days to live, I'm not going to follow somebody else's rules. I'm going to do my own shit. Right. And they, right. They just they never establish like you will die in three days unless like they don't say that they just like you're gonna die in three days so follow all of our rules it just it doesn't anyway but so that's sort of the, the the frame and then he gets in further involved into this thing uh has something of a crisis of conscience and a lot of internal dialogue and uh and eventually realizes that these two gentlemen were the guys on opposite sides of his cell at prison, uh, which for some reason he didn't put together in the first place, even though one of them is a con man and one of them is a chess master, uh, which was basically all he knew about those people. Uh, and the three of them ride off into the sunset with Ray Liotta's money, as far as I can tell. 
that that is that about rap? I mean, is that is that one of the is that one bash? I mean, it's the movie doesn't make any sense. There is a lot of Ray Liotta on display in this movie, and I don't know whose decision that was, uh, but they need to be fired and kept from ever making a movie again. Ray Liotta's decision, and that might be the reason he never made another movie after this. Wait, was that really his last movie? I don't know if it was that. Oh. Joke, I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, we, we get we get heavy doses of uh, of Ray Liotta in little to no clothing, and then also of his like. Uh, black light white teeth uh, under under the UV lamps. And it looks like he's had an iron pressed onto his face. There's a very strange <laughs> like form around his nose area where it just looks totally different from the rest of his skin. So you see blinding white teeth and then blue skin and then sort of like pinkish skin. Well, everything is wrong. You're right. Uh, there's a bizarre animated sequence that is un- unexplained. Um, I... I mean, literally, like I'm, I'm just looking through my notes. Basically, I and I, I mentioned this in in the chat ahead of time, but it, this movie feels like it feels like you're and, and I'm speaking as someone who went to film school in Southern California. It feels like your buddy at film school, like shows up at a party, just coked out of his brain, and is like, "I have the best idea ever for a movie. You're not going to believe it." And then he tries to explain it out loud to you, and this is what this is what falls out of his mouth. Is this just like jumble? of half-baked thoughts that like seem to him like the smartest thing he's ever thought of. But when do they actually materialize? They make no sense at all. Well, yeah, it's cocaine or Kabbalah. It's <laughs> maybe, maybe that's the episode title. <laughs> the art is for me to feed pieces to you and make you believe you took those pieces because you're smarter and I'm dumber. In every game and con, there is always an opponent and there is always a victim. The more control the victim thinks he has, the less control he actually has. Gradually, he will hang himself. Now, as the opponent, just help him along. I don't even know what where to like start with this. I guess we're talking a little bit about the plot holes. Why don't Why don't we just Why don't we just rip the plot holes apart here? Uh, plot holes, continuity errors. Zeke, we'll start with you. Anything Anything really stand out that you noticed this time around, uh, as opposed to you, know, you said you were kind of enthralled the, the first time? Anything really stick out as being like oh well this didn't make any sense at all i mean the most glaring one is absolutely the uh the leverage that these two guys this uh so it's andre 3000 and vincent pastore uh playing um zach and avi these these two uh loan sharks who swoop in he's told that he had uh jason statham aka jake green uh is told that he has a rare blood disease um, he has a, a very dramatic scene where he falls down some stairs in, in slow motion and uh, is, is um, told that he's, he's got three days to live and uh, he, goes, he goes to one doctor who tells him, yes, you've got three days to live. He thinks that uh, she's being paid off by these two con men. He goes to a second doctor who tells him, you've got this rare blood disease, you've got three days to live. Um, I just like to point out now because the doctor comes back, he pulls a gun on this doctor, and like is inches from shooting him, is like absolutely inches from shooting him, and the doctor lets him back into the office later on in the movie. <laughs> like it just like brings him back in. But it, the 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 whole premise of the movie falls apart when you really look at that. Like you know, they then go to him and say, "We can keep you from dying." But it's not like they poisoned him and have the antidote. Like they just say, we'll keep you alive. All you need to do is give us all your money and do whatever we say, including answering any questions we ask of you. There is no explanation at all. And and everyone acts like this is rock solid leverage. (laughs) Like Jason Statham is like moping in a corner of a room at one point thinking about how, how hard over a barrel these two have him. And it, it's just like this whole movie falls apart <laughs> with, with that that uh, premise right there. Yeah, I mean, it, that was I, I have like multiple times written just like in my notes. I <laughs> uh, I have. Let's see. Uh, seriously, why does he care about the cash? Why would he help these guys if he's going to die? They didn't offer him life. Uh, 
Then I have when Jason Statham literally says it doesn't make any sense. And I have no, it doesn't. Uh, and, and then again, in all caps, why is he doing anything for these guys? What is their leverage? <laughs> like it just the whole time I was like, I couldn't even like try to get into the, the story. Cause I, all I could think of is like, none of the, none of the premise makes any sense. Um, and if he, if he deep down knows that these are the dudes from his prison, then like, why what i did the whole dance just doesn't it just doesn't make any sense to me also like why are they loan sharks why are they like that was a very it, strange decision. if they already have the money why are they going and lending <laughs> money to people who clearly can't afford to pay them back like like there's n- i i don't know the whole the whole setup was very strange um well i i other than other than everything we just, we just said were there were there things that just just didn't make any sense in terms of the, the plot so i i did go and look it up after the fact but the 12 dollar bills what why why is that there other than kabbalah why is that there and the thing is that 12 in and of itself is not necessarily like a standout number three would be a standout number 13 is a standout number, and then of course at the very end he gets stuck in a fucking elevator between 12 and 14, which is 13. Right. It's all horseshit. It's like insane <laughs> horseshit where he's trying to combine sets of threes, which is our trio, our lead, our lead actors, I guess. Because apparently uh, Green is the center tenant of Kabbalah, and uh, Black is the left tenant of Kabbalah. It, like, it's complete madness, but it still doesn't actually work in Kabbalistic terms. So it doesn't is, even is, work. Is large Italian man the right no, wing of Kabbalah? Even, no, they didn't even... When I was the okay. themes, it was like, no, no, no large Italian man. It's just... I, well, and just, just for, uh, for the listener who might be extremely confused as opposed to just the amount of so confused that, that, that we are, but uh, Guy Ritchie married Madonna. Madonna had <laughs> converted to Kabbalah, the esque Judaism, like extreme That's probably, right? mi- mi- mysticism, Judaism. I'm Jewish, and I don't even know most of this stuff. So, like, we're, we're talking about why this all ended up in this film is because of Guy Ritchie and Madonna and all of that. So that just, just in case you you don't have that background, um, the big nitpick that I have, honestly, at the end turn of. Um, Sorter, Mark, uh, I'm blanking on his last name. Mark Strong, yeah. Yeah, Mark Strong, the best character in the film. At the very start of his turn, when he, spoiler alert, puts a bullet in the back of the lead henchman's neck, the slide locks back, which means you don't have any more bullets in your magazine. <laughs> and then he just keeps shooting anyway. And I was like, all right, well, thanks, Guy Ritchie. You, you, right, you'd think a Guy Ritchie movie would get that right, at least. Um but, yeah, I, I actually had another thing with with Mark Strong's character, which again was a, was a really strong character. Uh, he he was this sort of uh, uh, yeah dead eyed assassin who who then grew a heart and a conscience sort of as the movie went on. Um, but we don't really know why. Like just a little bit of background there for like why yeah, tiny bit. You just find out that he had a daughter or like had a daughter who died or something where, where that, or there's like the connection to the kid, like something, something personal that explained why he suddenly like threw this comfortable life <laughs> away and would like basically make himself enemy number one. You know, it's all these like it just there just seemed like there was this little little piece missing because that I like I thought that scene might have been the best scene uh, as he sort of yeah. hunted ever, everybody down just just like through like listening to them through the through the building and everything. Well, I texted um, you right after that. I said this is the most or he's the most interesting character in the movie. I would like a movie a movie about him. I don't give a yeah fuck about Jason Statham. Yeah, I think we yeah. all agreed on that point. Yeah, he is one hundred percent the most interesting person in this movie. Yeah, like, bar none. All of his yeah. scenes are the best. Well, yeah, and Zeke <laughs> said he has an actual arc where it's like he starts as a creepo and uh, gets somewhere else. Yeah, and, and I mean, to the point about Jason Statham, he's just so boring. <laughs> like he's like, <laughs> and and you just you just so frustrated with him. Like like he can see all these moves ahead on a chessboard, but when they hand him a gun to like shoot this this person they're shaking down. It doesn't occur to him that they're handing him an unloaded gun. Eventually, when the opponent is challenged or questioned, 
means the victim's investment and thus his intelligence is questioned. No one can accept that. Not even to themselves. Checkmate. I ain't playing you again. Right. Like, like that, he, he can't see that one step ahead that I'm like, there's no way they're handing him a load. Well, and gun. theoretically, he knows <laughs> his way around guns. And, you know, an unloaded gun is a lot lighter than a loaded gun. Ammo has significant weight to it. And he could have just popped popped it out and checked real quick if he was, you know, if he'd had any awareness. Right, that, like, cool ch- ch- thing. Right. I, the only thing they seem to be concerned about with Jason Statham's character was how cool he was. I mean, he's what? got he's got the long flowing hair, which is bizarre to see on Jason Statham. Like, I, I honestly forgot that this was Jason Statham in this role in the 10 plus years it's been since I've seen this. Um, because the I, all I remember was the hair and that porn stash. We have to talk about let's, the mustache. Let's discuss the hair. <laughs> let's discuss all the hair. His long hair on top looks like it's a helmet. It doesn't really move that much. It's clear. No, it just it, that does not look like hair. That that it looks very much like something that was set on top of him, and you know, it's like it gets wheeled in and out of the prop department at at the, the beginning and end of each shooting day, and they go and they put it in its its special like he's, case. He's got a sweat through there, so they take it off like a helmet. They're just like, <laughs> okay, bud, hang on, take five, and we'll get you back in the game. Well, and we had seen him completely bald five years earlier. Like, like, like his he'd been established as like a bald action star dude. Like, this is what he's gonna look like for the rest of his life. Like, you're there's no regressing back to this. This sort of like we we just in the last episode we just finally entered the Nicolas Cage universe. I mean, he he looks like he he looks like he's trying to look like Nicolas Cage. You know what I mean? That sort of grimy era Nicolas Cage with the, the like the greasy mm-hmm. hanging hair and just like it. Yeah, it. It's it's hard to take someone who looks like that seriously. <laughs> I almost wonder if they had another actor in mind, a, an actor with hair and who had a, a full mustache and all that, and then they couldn't get him. But Guy Ritchie was so dead set on this is the look. This is how cool I need my my uh, main character to be. I am sure and that they, after Snatch, they, they thought they <laughs> could get Brad Pitt or something to do this like <laughs> Jesus messianic figure. But I mean, as far as his character goes, yeah, he's just, he's not, he's not interested. But beyond the weird hair and the porn stash, just, he constantly is dropping these, like, you know, little sayings and, like, catchphrases that are clearly designed to be as cool as possible. And none of them, you know, they all just leave you scratching your head. It's, it's just like, who thought this sounded cool? Who read this line out loud and said. The whole fucking 30 seconds of the opening of the movie is a flashcard after flashcard of, of sayings from some bullshit, you know, from 732 BC or whatever. And there's no way that any of that shit is accurate. And then, yeah, this is the most overwritten fucking dialogue narration in the history of mankind. Yeah, instead of picking one quote and deciding, okay, this is the ethos of of, of this film that we're, that we're really gonna peg something to, you get quote, you there were at least four. You had from Caesar, from Machiavelli, and from the Fundamentals of Chess. We're all in in that in the that opening titles, and, and then you're just fuck going up chess. You're just going <laughs> what like what what you you have not thought through what this movie's about. You're telling me in the first thirty seconds you have not really thought through what what you're actually going to try to convey to me. You just have a bunch of stuff that you've like read in the last thirty six hours as you've been like, between lines. Because you, know? you married Madonna. Yeah, but I mean, like it's this this reads like a philosophy major's first draft. You know, like like it's, it's just stuffed with with like initial ideas that haven't actually been like really chewed and, and thought through uh just like slapped together um but we were talking about the characters and I, i'm curious uh 
uh, Zeke, w- was there a character specifically in this film that, that improved the most, you know, on a second watch and one that, that maybe sank the most? Uh, I would say I, I came to really appreciate Mark Strong's uh, character. I mean, that one is obviously that we all said that was the standout. We would have loved to see more of, of that. Um, I mean, that just kind of speaks to how incredibly talented Mark Strong is. He had a little bit part um, and I, he's, I guess he's supposed to be kind of the, the counterpart to Jason Statham's Jake Green, where he goes on this own, like his own narrative journey from he's sent to assassinate Jake in the beginning. Uh, he's like this, you know, perfect assassin. He's a stone cold killer, deadly accurate. Um, you know, we see him pull off some crazy feats uh, throughout the movie. Um, like shooting people through walls or, you know, who are walking, you know, on the floor above him just by listening to where they're at. Um, and so he, he misses shooting J.C. Statham's character. And uh, the only explanation that we get for it, everyone seems freaked out. And he says, well, you know, I had a bad feeling. And that bad feeling apparently sets off his entire arc of coming to, uh, you know, like, turn turncoat on on uh ray liotta um it, it just it isn't you know it's not incredibly fleshed out it's just mark strong you know being mark strong being incredibly talented um and then jason statham's character is obviously like you know it, it he's not actually that cool um you know it, it it very much sounds like what a high schooler uh, would think of as a as a cool gangster type, which is probably why it impressed me the first time around. Um, and, and then a character who kind of stayed on par with how I thought of it, Andre 3000's character, Avi. I really liked, I still like Andre 3000's role in this movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like the, the, the one guy who was like the most underused or just like I kept waiting for him to turn out to be more interesting was uh, the kind of number two to Ray Liotta that the, 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 he like he seemed like he was in on it almost. He seemed like like he had some information that he wasn't uh, like like spilling about why things kept going wrong because they just keep it like escalating and going wrong and like we're so used to seeing like the villain make his number two, like pay in those situations and, you know, like, like punish him in some way. Like he didn't. And I was like, Oh, maybe he's in on this. Maybe, maybe there's some, he's somehow he's connected to this whole thing. And we're going to, cause I kept waiting for like that, that snatch reveal where it turns out, you know, that, that Brad Pitt's character has orchestrated this entire, you know, I, I was waiting for that, that like big, big reveal of, Oh, all of these things happened because there was this sort of, you know, chain of, of, of events that, that was supposed to unfold this way. And like, I think the movie thought that it had that, but it kind of didn't. It kind of was just like, Oh yeah, all these, right. It was just like, Oh, well these, these guys were in on it, but like nothing else was tied together in any way. Um, so I was disappointed because I thought that that I was expecting that that for that character to like maybe pay off, and then just nothing happened. Like he just got shot in the, in the neck by, by Mark Strong. Like it's like, well, that's it. Um, he never really sort of, I don't know. It, it just, it felt like a missed opportunity, I guess. There uh, is definitely a scene where the movie thinks that it's dropped a huge truth bomb on you. Um, oh God. And you know, it does the whole like pan in on Jason Statham's like shocked face. Um, at, you know, as, as, Oh, the whole mystery unfolds at this point. But it's just, you know, it's the kind of reveal that leaves you asking more questions and not in a good way. Just like in a, well, what what do you mean that this this is the reveal you have for me? This is what I've been sitting through this movie for. <laughs> well, the best way that I could describe it, I guess, is if you take Snatch, you have these wonderful circles of actions, right? So you meet Brad Pitt, who appears to be like just a moron fist fighter who has this crazy family. And when you first are introduced all he wants is a is a uh, you know an rv for his mom basically caravan for your mom caravan for your mom and so that seems to be pitt's only motivation is i'll do whatever for this caravan for my mom fine but richie at least the script or the screenplay in snatch is smart enough to save a lot of the reveals until later 
to loop back for the reasoning why. In this, it's rapid fire back and forth five minutes, ten minutes, maybe a day, we don't know. It's a complete mess. I can't tell if this movie is a straight line, if there is a circular logic to it, if it's just sprawled out like a pine cone fallen and leaving an impression and shit. It makes no fucking sense. Um, what, what about, I mean, this, this movie's, it's only 15 years old. It feels, you mentioned sort of this setting is this weird, uh, it's not necessarily Vegas, but that's probably like the best guess if it was a real place. It's this sort of always dark, uh, you know, uh, gambling centric city where the the general population seems to speak American English. Like it seems like the characters that aren't assigned specifically to be something else, like like speak American English. Uh, obviously, Guy Ritchie's still guy Ritchie, or i mean uh jason statham still jason statham uh, but but i mean guy like, Ritchie is still guy Ritchie. yeah but i mean like even mark strong's character i believe has an american accent throughout yes, this yeah. thing right i mean like they, they americanize people to the point where it doesn't feel like it's supposed to be in england um uh it, what 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 stood out of sort of like things that were extremely uh, of the time or or era to you guys i think they show a television twice and I didn't think of America, I thought of England, because the Swisher is enormous. It's bigger than any TV Swisher I ever saw like when I was a kid. So it's like this 3x4 shitty CRT TV, like tube TV, uh, specifically when it's the um, uh, bald guy with his daughter, and they're watching the frogs. And the Swisher is just the thickest goddamn thing I've ever seen in my life. It's, it looks like it's got to be from the late 70s or early 80s. I noticed that with a lot of the, I mean, any technology in the, uh, the movie is incredibly stylized. Like, it's, it's, I think they intentionally don't give a city that it's set in. It's supposed to be this fictionalized, somewhat of a Las Vegas kind of thing. But there's, I mean, the, the style of the movie is not at all the problem with it. It's, it's very cool looking from the outside it's, it's all this art deco stylings all the cars are from the 70s the tvs are all like old school you know tube uh tube tvs and you know so i i think there was supposed to be a little bit of confusion as to where it was set and what time it was set in um there are cell phones uh, there there's at least one scene where jason statham answers like a 2005 2004 era flip phone um but that's about the only piece of like you know modern technology that we really get throughout the movie everything else is kind of uh in this weird limbo of you know you don't really know what time period it's it's set in yeah it almost i i just sort of thought of this as we we're talking about it but it almost had sort of a, a matrix feel like when they're when they're in the matrix like when they're they're living in the sort of yeah you know, you know fake Absolutely. don't give uh, it too much credit don't give it too much credit careful no 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 <laughs> I, i'm just I, i'm just saying in terms of it, it is sort of like like zeke mentioned sort of the art deco style and it had but then the older cars and sort of a sanitized but also like stylized certain things. I just, I don't know, a lot, a lot of shiny, uh, you know, uh, mist and sort of some rich color palettes and stuff. It, just sort of in the same way that, that the matrix def- sort of made that fake world look like an almost dream world, you know? Yeah, I definitely agree. I really, really do enjoy the look of the movie and the style of the movie. Um, but I think that might actually be part of the, problem with it because Guy Ritchie clearly had no idea there was no singular vision no, yeah it really feels like he was he was listening to uh Madonna talk a little bit about Kabbalah and like you know she she just kept coming up to him and like saying things about it and he would like listen and kind of nod along and then three months into that he's like yeah I can make a movie about that stuff I guess and then did no more research <laughs> and then <laughs> they got like, divorced. Yeah, and then they did a ton of cocaine, and you know, I I think Noah's Noah's idea, I I uh, I imagine, is not far off based from how this movie actually got made. I bet almost everyone involved in every step of production was just doing a mountain of cocaine, which is incredibly ironic considering the key thesis of this movie, <laughs> which is you know the ego is a bad thing, and you should. 
there's also the MacGuffin that is present throughout this movie, which is the powder. Mr. Gold's powder. Why yeah, we have good powder, by the way. It was the powder all the way through. Um, we haven't even touched about on the the Mr. Gold arc, which was also just perplexing, and I, I don't think as smart as Guy Ritchie clearly thought it was. Um, so I, I can do a quick synopsis on that. Well, well, yeah, I mean, so, uh, you know, you we had mentioned Fight Club before we started, and you, you talked about Fight Club earlier. Like, the, the whole, like... <laughs> This is the same sort of attempt to, to like talk about like the ego and the ubermensch and like this sort of whole thing, except it just doesn't get there. It does not does not actually like look at it in the full depth that that Fight Club did. And then this is like 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 the the whole the whole like Mr. Gold thing is is almost like a same thing like a surface level skim attempt at like the usual suspects in Kaiser Sose. It's this mystical evil villain that it's the devil that 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 there was even a line that was almost ripped from usual suspects where it was like uh like the greatest trick the devil ever pulled like that there was a slight alteration to that line uh well it's also the worst interpretation of the actual line which is the greatest trick the devil devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist right which dates back to like 1892 Right, but it was like the the inverse of that. It was basically the was the greatest awful. trick was 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 convincing the world that that he did exist. Like, <laughs> like convincing the world that he was you. You know, like that was. I think that was the line, and and that that was part of like the the mind fuck. Uh, oh, whoa, what? That the movie clearly thought it had going because, like, like I said, we got the face pull on Jason Statham. Like, whoa, what do you what do you mean, <laughs> dude? It's a deep bruh. And I'm sure, I'm sure, and you know, I can just picture, you know, high school me sitting on my buddy's couch, going, "Whoa, what do you mean there is no Mr. Gold?" <laughs> so this reminds me of when my uh, my sophomore year college roommate like insisted that we watch Boondock Saints because he was so like into Boondock, and, and we watched it, and I was like. How much have you thought about this movie? Like, how much have you, how much have you really broken this down to understand, like, just how little is there? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's uh, right. It it had some ideas that could have gone somewhere, but none of them actually did. Uh, oh, in another director's hands, this is a like this movie could have worked if for if someone had paid a little more attention to the philosophical ideas that are clearly trying to get through in this movie there's there's a a plot here that, that could have worked and gotten some kind of point across about the ego i mean it's fight club it's the movie is fight club it, and is it, fight exists. Club, yes. it has been made <laughs> right to the point where in the elevator the ego shoots itself in the head i mean right yeah that was that was the scene where i was like okay guys yeah. are you are you literally gonna put this gun to your head and shoot the the your your inner thoughts out like we're are we gonna do this like frame by frame <laughs> um yeah so uh would i one of the other sort of maybe the only like really glaring uh just going back to the of the time and error references was just the fact that Andre Benjamin, Andre 3000 is in fact in this film. <laughs> this was <laughs> in, in, in like that small window where he was doing a lot of acting and uh, outcast was sort of at their, at their peak. Um, which also brings me to uh, my, my self-indulgence uh, for the podcast of Gaucho watch where we try to find uh, any connection to anyone uh, in the film from UC Santa Barbara, my alma mater. Uh, and there is not, as far as I can tell, uh, in a mostly British put together production, anyone directly connected. However, uh, Andre 3000 and Outcast did headline, co-headline the 2014 Firefly Music Festival with Jack Johnson, a graduate of the film school at UC Cal- University of California, Santa Barbara, thereby fulfilling Gaucho Watch uh, for this week. <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, we we haven't talked about the soundtrack yet. What's what did you notice? What stood out? Any anything? Um, I Guy Ritchie, you know, Snatch especially had this really good driving, compelling sound. I bought the Snatch soundtrack. I used to listen to oh, that yeah. just like in the, in my car. It was great. Especially for Massive Attack. Yeah. So, like, what did you guys notice of, of this soundtrack? Uh, what's what stood out to you? 
Uh, for me, I mean, it was a lot of the same, like, same driving baseline through the entire thing that, like, to the point where it was like, you know, it was playing through every scene and, you know, every scene that we got a flashback, which was every, every single scene in this movie, um, you know, it, it was the same, like, high energy baseline uh, with a, with, um, Jason Statham doing an, a, an inner monologue over it. Um, so it, it felt like it was, it was supposed to be this energetic, like, you know, it, it was, it was serviceable, you know, I don't, I don't think it like, it, it didn't stand out to me in any way, you know, it didn't like hamper the movie, but it also wasn't like, Oh man, I, I need that soundtrack. I, I think it was one of the better parts of the film. It was clearly done on like like a moog or something, where it was just somebody hitting keys to try to go with the with the scene. It had this sort of improvisational feel to it, and that's okay. I mean, I fucking hate jazz, but it was it was generally okay. Um, I liked some of the stings and the moments where where it was like stop, and then it would go boop, like <laughs> the soundtrack. And they just kind of like let it go. I enjoyed that, like giving giving the scene some time to breathe after a ridiculous moment or a crazy moment. I appreciated that. I, I, I would say, again, yeah, it's one of the few pluses, I guess, I would put in the film's favor. I, I would have enjoyed it more without the voiceover. The voiceover, like, vo- well, I'm, I, I hate voiceover as like a, a policy. Like, like unless you really, really, really need it. Uh, you really shouldn't you should use your characters to, to you know to talk about something and man it was that was a real bad voice there's, there's something there's something it's not it's not not word by word um precise but there's a moment early on where jason statham just looks like really mad in a room and the narration is like i was mad and he's like and just, <laughs> he has like completely fur brow like I, yeah dude i know i don't i don't need a voiceover to tell me that you're mad i get that like you could have done still the like him talking to himself and the voices in his head and like the really the same with him with ray Liotta. But it's like be shit that we can't yeah like but, like that, that glean from right that that was okay you could tell that it was like his inner thoughts like like overwhelming like and, and he was confused like that i'm fine with that but it just right there was just useless narration where you're like just show us what's happening and like just let the characters live you know exactly like immediate scene fix when he's first given the cash over after being built by his two former cellmates or whatever and he's putting the the, the money on the desk and he's got this like really cranky brow on his head he's going I wanted some tacos you know just something anything to take us out of that give us <laughs> Give us a look into his head. I wanted tacos. I want fish tacos specifically. But here I was giving a thousand, hundred thousand dollars to this mensch or whatever. You know, like I don't. What was his name? Horowski or Horowitz? The first victim. Horowitz, yeah. Horowitz, yeah. <laughs> Just give us something else. Give us like something that could be kind of funny. I I yeah. almost wonder if if it was. I don't think this was intentional. I'm giving Guy Ritchie way too much credit here, and I I. Don't think I should do that for this movie, but a lot of the voiceover was incredibly stupid, and there were a lot of lines that were trying so hard to be cool, and they weren't. And then at the end, when it's you know revealed that Jake's been at war with his ego this whole time, and the ego is bad, um, you know, and and the thing that he's actually he should be instead of his fight against Ray Liotta, he's supposed to be fighting against Mr. Gold, aka his ego um it is is the the ego the voiceover from the beginning supposed to be stupid is it something we're supposed to roll our eyes at or is it guy Ritchie trying to be cool and i think it's the latter it's yeah cool it would almost be clever if it weren't but i really think it's guy Ritchie. i actually thought a lot of those lines were cool I, I will I will give the credit on the Horowitz thing there. That is a Kabbalah connection. That specifically is that. That's oh, is a that, yeah. It, it, that that was intentional. Like so, that's why that existed. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but that is that is the explanation for why. What's the, what's uh, the connection? It was. It's one of the. It's uh or no no. You know what? It's he's a uh 
he was a chess master. It's a chess. It's a chess connection. Oh, okay. He he was like one of the early twentieth century chess masters, I think. Um, and so that that was it was it was tied into the idea of the of the the plot of the film and the chess angles of the film. Um, that see that I can appreciate. Yeah, yeah, that's how it should be. Oh, and it was funny. I saw <laughs> like some of like the film trivia. Someone this felt like like an awful stretch to me, especially after watching Tenet. Uh, but they were like, if you look at the word revolver, it's it matches up to like the pattern of like the pieces on a chessboard. Like if the R's are like the rooks, it not now it doesn't actually match up like letter by letter. But like like uh, like the, it. You know, R's on the outside, then E's coming in would be like your 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 bishops, or your you know you know what I mean. It'd be your uh, yeah, knights, your bishops. <laughs> no, I know, <laughs> I know. Like if you really stretch it, you could you could make the case that they, like it corresponds like equivalently because it's it's not a palindrome exactly right, but it's but it's close to where the the, the middle two where the king and the queen are are not the same. Anyway, I. After having watched Tenet and the and the care that they went to with the Tenet Square and like like how every single the Sador and every every single one it matches up to like a, a major component of the film, uh, it, I was like I'm less inclined to give credit here <laughs> that, that that this is uh, you know such a such a great like allegory to this. Chess I mean, I don't, I don't even like Christopher Nolan, but I'm willing to bet he's like 20 points above Guy Ritchie. The name revolver for this movie is is just you know I, I on the rewatch was trying to figure out what the connection could possibly be, and I think we only see one revolver. Yeah, I, I think we only see one revolver in the entire movie, and yeah, maybe it is like a reference to the the circular nature of of Jake's life and his experience, but uh, I, I think it falls short in that aspect. There aren't a ton of guns. I mean, there's a couple scenes with guns in this movie. There's exactly one. There, there's okay. There's a fair amount of gunplay in this movie, but there's like one revolver that I can actually think of. Yeah, I, I considering it's a Guy Ritchie movie, you expect that to be a gun reference, but it, I don't think that it's supposed to be. I think that it is supposed to be sort of a, a metaphor for for life and, and everything, and and maybe some mysticism that you know we don't even uh, get into. Um, uh, or at least not until I was laughing at Deepak Chopra in the credits. <laughs> let's let's look at these. Uh, I always enjoy this, and this will be an interesting venture for this for this film. What what has happened to each of these characters and to the world uh, around them in the intervening? At this point, it's 16 years up to present day. What 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 do we think has happened to uh, Jake and company? Well, I, I think um, I mean they probably went the the Deepak Chopra route. I mean they they probably have their own book deals and their own you know brand of mysticism that they have uh, weaponized and you know are now selling to the masses um, in their attempts to prove how how free of their own egos they are. Um, and you know they they are uh, helping some version of some orange-haired president <laughs> to eat more salad. Um, oh, man. It, it it would be hard to say where these guys ended up um, just because it's hard to say where they ended up five minutes after the movie ended. You know? It's like, what what good does this this struggle that they have been through do for any of them as the, as the credits roll? They don't, they don't clarify by the end of the movie what has happened to uh, Jake's brother, who the last we saw his house had been invaded by Ray Liotta's uh, goon squad, and Mark Strong had just finished presumably killing off all of them. Um, I, I saw in the UK version, at least, um, that story turned out even more ridiculous than the, the version we watched, because by the end of that, uh, one of the other goons walks up and kills Mark Strong and then reports back to Ray Liotta and says, uh, yeah, you know, I'm the Fuck only survivor. 
I'm the only survivor from all that. And, you know, Ray Liotta says, okay, what about the girl? And then the scene cuts. And we never get an answer on that. So, like, as, as bad as that whole sequence was and as bad as the resolution for almost every character is in this movie, it was somehow worse in the UK version, despite I, the fact the UK went into more detail as to what happened to all of them. I was wondering why we didn't have, at least in the US version, like, he, Mark Strong, is he's been shot twice in the shoulder, and he just kind of, like, that's it. But that's better than whatever the fuck was in the UK version. Jesus Christ! Yeah, that's like that's like that horrible scene that The Departed has that Infernal Affairs yeah. didn't have, where, where Mark Wahlberg just shows up to cap off Matt Damon for no reason right. instead of letting him live with all of the carnage that he's reached, which is the entire purpose of the like that's the whole moral of the film. But like you needed an American revenge story, so he just shows up <laughs> and puts a bullet in his fucking head. Anyway, I hate that movie. Oh. Um, uh, yeah, so I like I I kind of have two answers for this because I I feel like either they're still off conning people, kind of like you said, uh, Zeke. You know that they're still off like like running cons and or dead because the con finally backfired. Uh, but my other answer is that I'm not even sure that this world exists outside of Guy Ritchie's coke-addled mind. Like it, like it, this this is not really reality. Like it's this weird. The whole thing felt like a dream a dream world. Like it didn't feel. Like, like where, where snatch, there are no cops, right? I mean, snatch still felt like London, you know what I mean? Like it felt grounded. And and we talked earlier about how this is not set in a specific city. This is not set. Like, like there's, there's very little specificity about like what, like when and where this is all taking place. Uh, And because of that, like, yeah, it just, it doesn't feel grounded in anything. Like there's, in a way that we're you're like okay well now they go and live the rest of their lives in whatever state of affairs in wherever they're living because i don't I don't even know where they are like i don't even know like where any of this is taking place outside of some sort of dreamscape well what did what did you have for this i i think it's i i, I uh... like what's happened to these characters no i mean i know i still From my interpretation of the movie, they are in the late 80s, early 90s. They ride the sort of new new spiritualism wave with uh, some bullshit chakras and stones, get a few book deals, and then they're outed in uh, 2003, shortly before the film actually comes out as complete frauds, and they're all put to death. That's what I want. <laughs> Maybe that's how, they ended up, that's how they ended up in prison in the first place. It's all circle. <laughs> there you go. It revolves. There we go. Time there we go. Flat circle. <laughs> it's like poetry. Uh, all right. So uh, now that we have broken this all down uh, in every which way, could this movie, Zeke, we'll start with you, get made today? I don't think it should have been made back then. I, I, I think, you know, it. It derailed Guy Ritchie's career for a couple of years. Um, and with reading, good reason. Yes. For perfectly good reason. I was reading a, an interview he did a few years after the movie, and um, it, he's still incredibly defensive over how this movie came out. He, he insists that this is exactly the movie he meant to make, um, and that you know it's, it's kind of our fault for... for being uh, being rubes for not understanding. Isn't that kind of exactly? Like <laughs> Just tweeting through yes. it, man. I love it. Oh, no, absolutely. Like I, I think every part of this movie came out ironic, unintentionally ironic, because Guy Ritchie's massive ego got in the way of making a good movie and understanding that he made a bad movie. Yeah. Um. So I mean, he didn't even recognize that this film kept him from making a movie for three years, and then you know. By the time Rock and Rolla came out, apparently he had some issues with his studio. They didn't initially want to pay for a wide theatrical release. They weren't very confident in it. Because um, before this, he had directed Swept Away with Madonna, and that was uh, that was personally panned. Um, so he did two just duds in a row. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't know if he put himself in timeout or the studios wouldn't touch him for a while. Um but they were expensive duds too. That's the thing. Oh, for sure, for sure. Um, yeah, this this movie clearly took some money to make. 
I don't know what was going on with that cartoon scene. Um, I think but that- so. I actually have a theory about that. I think that they didn't want to show the actual. They didn't want to show or didn't have the money to do the proper squibs to have two bullets that were not properly done bullets. By the way, that's not what bullets look like. Bullets through two different skulls, and so they were like, "We'll make it a cartoon and just throw red on top of it." <laughs> yeah, I couldn't tell if it was because of the sleeping gas. Like they wanted it to to be like kind of loopy and weird. Like like, but it was it's just right. There's no explanation for it, and it is like kind of anime styled in a way that feels like unintentionally racist. Like like we're we're in this scene with this like yakuza crime gang, and like now we're we're gonna show like an anime. Like what right, what's happening this here? Weird goiter. <laughs> yeah it was, it was, uh yeah it was all unpleasant the, the, I'm right this movie to your point it cost tens of millions of dollars i don't know what the budget was i didn't, I didn't see a budget number but like 27 it, million yeah right and made eighty four thousand in the u.s <laughs> uh so right like i the reason that it, that it couldn't get made today in that sense is that no one's giving guy ritchie 27 million dollars for this movie today uh because he's shown that that's not a very worthy investment or, you know, to try trustworthy investment. Uh, it's, I, I, I feel like, I feel like there's very few directors who could get away with making a, a fairly large budget version of something that's this, uh, kind of conceptual. Um, you'd really have to, one, you'd have to write a tighter script, uh, but you'd have to really sell them on like, why this is why it has the good sides of a, of a fight club or our usual suspects or uh, you know sort of the movies we've touched on but isn't just like a total rehash or sort of uh you know microwave facsimile of those um i don't i don't know who the director i mean maybe nolan is the is the one who he might be the only one who someone would would bankroll something like this for um but I, you know, it wouldn't need to be a three hundred million dollar movie. It could, you could get away with something at at fifteen percent of that, probably. Um, yeah. Uh, any loose ends? Anything else we, we we didn't cover? Anything else you guys wanted to talk about? You have in your notes uh, before we wrap this thing? I found it as like starkly and strangely male centered. There are no women in the movie, unless they're like naked, sitting on a bench right, next like a to a character with a champagne bottle in her crotch. Uh, but it's that or the little girl, which is in and of itself super weird. There was Mister Gold's, um, you know, I guess second in command, Mrs. Walker. Yeah, Lily Walker. Um, she was the only female character i think with a with a speaking part besides the the 12 year old girl um and even she has that strange scene that you know she walks up to a line of of beautiful women and she's like feeling up their faces and one of them kind of like she's like pressing her thumb against their lips and one of them kind of like flinches and you know like it's what was that like so it it, it is very male-centric it is you know like just kind of bizarre the lack of female characters throughout this entire movie yeah yeah she like examines her like a horse like literally she's like looking at her like gums like it's it's it's, that every i I didn't really understand what that character was doing like like other than again going back to the usual suspects like the sort of kaiser so say just uh uh, distraction. Uh, I can't remember what the character's name was anymore, but the the lawyer, the you know the the lawyer who he sends in his place uh, in the Usual Suspects, who's like his representative, you know, as a smokescreen. Like, but I was like, are you actually employed by this person? Like, what? I, I don't know. The, the whole again, an idea that could have been like explained, and that we could have seen her at the end, you know, as part of this group you know pulling this whole thing off and understanding that there is no mr gold but like no they just leave that that thread hanging yeah the other thing that i wanted to point out was uh especially i don't i don't know if kabbalah uh, kabbalah recognizes 
Jesus as a savior. But right before the Ray Liotta, please fear me, please fear me scene, which is incredibly embarrassing. up on Jason Statham with that long hair inside the elevator after rising up from rising up or going down from floor 13 and he is lit up from behind in such a ridiculous way that the sconce behind his head things I've ever seen with the film yeah I mean it's very intentional obviously that the, the playing on the on the, the sort of devil and angel stuff that's uh, sort of woven through this just absolutely Awesome. <laughs> my my biggest outstanding note was actually also from that scene, and it was about Ray Liotta. Um, and it was there are way too many liquids coming from Ray Liotta in this scene. <laughs> I mean, it was it was tough to watch, and like I know it's supposed to be an embarrassing scene for the character, but the fact that Ray Liotta agreed to—I mean, he is. He's back in in the the speedo thing that he spent way too much of the movie in. Um, he's got some like slippers on. He's holding a gun to Jason Statham, saying "Fear me, fear me." And Jason Statham's just been through an enlightenment in which he defeated his ego. Um, so he just walks right past him. But he uh, Ray Liotta is sweating. I mean, just profusely. Uh, you can just see it like pouring down him during the scene. And then it cuts in closer and he is sweating and crying. And then he says, fear me one more time. And this massive, just like blob of spit goes flying out. And I mean, in, in a, you know, COVID world that we've been living in, that was like one of the most horrific scenes I've seen in a while where it was just like, oh my God, this is, I, I can't watch this. This is. Well, for, for all you Ray Liotta lovers out there, <laughs> shortly after he made this, he made Wild Hogs. Oh. <laughs> so. Well, he debatably made Wild Hogs while he was making this. I mean, this was... <laughs> we, 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 we see entirely too much of Ray Liotta's physical form throughout oh, this film. No. <laughs> uh, I, all right. Uh so uh, I, I think we already know the answer to this, but uh, we, we must ask the all-important question uh, as, as we've reached the end of our journey here. Uh, Zeke, do you still like this movie? Ooh, man, no. No, it, this one did not live up to the rewatch. Um, I, I actually kind of wish I had never gone back and rewatched this because this could have just lived in my memory as like, oh, yeah, there's that other Guy Ritchie movie that I kind of like. Um, but this just, I completely destroyed any illusion that this, this may have been a good movie. Um, and at least you my confidence in, in how intelligent I was as, as a 16 year old. <laughs> well, at least you won't accidentally recommend it to anybody now. I mean, there's, at least there's that. That's true. That is true. Uh, and I, I, like I said at the start of the show, I, I almost feel like I should apologize to you guys for even recommending this, but you do run a podcast called, I think I like this movie specifically for this so you guys kind of brought this on yourselves <laughs> it's, it's, it's a service we, uh, we do for, uh, it, it is it is a hazard uh, of the occupation uh we 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 get some good ones we get some bad ones we uh had come off of a good one like sort of sort of rebounded and restored our faith so it's good to you know take another punch to, to the to the solar plexus and bring us back down Ooh, uh, this was a bad one. This was <laughs> this is about as bad as it gets. I, I I'm 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 not sure. We haven't. Uh, the point of this is is not to rank. That's not not we're not a ranking podcast. Uh, but it, it's 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 got to be in competition with with Ninth Gate um, uh, for the worst one that we've rewatched. I think at this point, it's it's close. Again, that's not important. That we're not we're not here. That's we're not here to rank films. This is not a best and worst of all time kind of kind of uh, show. This is this is all about uh, the personal journey, and uh, we thank Zeke uh, for going on that personal journey with us. Uh, Zeke, 
do you have anything that you would like to promote before we get out of here? Uh, no, not at the moment. Um, no, I, I thank you guys so much for, for bringing me onto the show. Uh, this is, this has been a blast. Um, sitting through the movie was not, but, uh, it was, it was worth it to get to do this. Um, I think I'll just say to, to anybody listening, um, uh, oh yeah, uh, Guy Ritchie's Wrath of Man, now in theater, starring Jason Statham. So, uh, you know, maybe avoid that like the plague, based, if, if Guy Ritchie's, um, uh, previous Jason Statham movie has, has anything to say about, about, um, the, the current movie. <laughs> I, I actually, it was so funny. I went on to IMDb to pull up the info for this movie and was confronted with a slide of Jason Statham's face. And I was like, wait, I haven't typed in the movie yet. Why am I looking at Jason's? And I was like, Oh, there's another new guy, Richie Jason Statham movie that is being advertised to be on the front of IMDb. Like at, literally as like the, the, the URL pulled up. Well, you know what uh, this means. Guy Richie, call us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. bring 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 some other, someone else's movie on the pod then we can we can we can chat it up um well thanks for joining us here uh if you find uh, another film from from your past that you need to feel like you need to revisit uh let us know and uh will you got anything else i no i, I think i'm with you i i i, I miss steel at this point and steel is not good <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually, I'm going to say I'm proud for bringing the worst movie out of this podcast. I'll, I'll take that. Well, it's that, top, it's top that title. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, I, I, for your penance, you can go watch The Ninth Gate and tell us if it's worse, uh, <laughs> since, since we had to sit <laughs> through that one, it's too. It's very close. This was slightly more entertaining, but The Ninth Gate was a little bit more earnest. Yeah, it's tough to say. It's, it's, it's hard. You're tied, though. Yeah, I mean, like, you're neck and neck. All right. Well, my next, uh, my next. That's round. not an encouragement to bring this terrible movie. <laughs> uh, speaking uh, of, we'll uh, we'll have a new guest uh, back here next week. Uh, so uh, hopefully, we'll have a, a completely different experience, and we will see you guys then. Like This Movie is created by Noah Frank and hosted by Noah Frank and Will Vitko. Editing by Will Vitko. All music on the show, unless otherwise noted, provided courtesy of the South County All-Stars. Copyright 2021.